In the decades leading up to World War II, the air power for the United States military primarily served as support for ground troops. That started to change as the U.S. watched the Nazi Blitzkrieg's devastation unfold in Europe. It seemed inevitable that the U.S. would be pulled into the conflict and the U.S. would need a dominant air force to fight off the Axis powers. So, on June 20, 1941, the United States Department of War shifted most of the personnel from the United States Army Air Corps that had been the air wing of the Army since 1926 and formed the new United States Army Air Forces. That same day, thousands of miles away in the county of Leicestershire in the English Midlands, a baby boy was born to Ruth and Russell Frears. Stephen Frears would go on to have a successful film career starting in the late 1960s. It really took off in the early 2000s as he directed the hit romantic comedy with John Cusack, High Fidelity. As of this recording, Stephen is currently working on his latest film about an improbable friendship between Queen Victoria and her Indian Muslim attendant of over 15 years named Abdul Karim. As you can probably guess, in the mid to late 1800s, it was a friendship that caused some friction among the elite of the British Empire. Perhaps that will be a story for another day. Today, we'll be learning about Stephen's most recent film that was based on a true story. Florence Foster Jenkins was made with a low budget of only about $30 million and released in 2016. After its release, the critics loved the film as it went on to be nominated for two Oscars, including Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role for Meryl Streep and Best Achievement in Costume Design for Consolata Boyle. In just a couple of weeks, we'll find out whether or not those nominations pan out in the Academy Awards on February 26th. Now, if you've seen all of the Oscar nominations this year, you've probably watched Foster Florence Jenkins. But how true to history is what you saw on the screen? I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is based on a true story. Let's take a moment to play a game. If you're new to the show, this is the part where you get to participate in the podcast. And here's how it works. I'll share three things. Two of them are true. One of them is a lie. Listen closely for the answers scattered throughout the episode. Then, at the end of the episode, we'll do a recap to learn which is which. Okay, here they are. In the movie, there's a character, Cosme McMoon. But his real name was Edwin MacArthur. Number two. Florence was a prodigy pianist as a child. Number three, the first appearance that the public could purchase tickets to was Florence's Carnegie Hall performance. Again, we'll recap the answers at the end of the show. Oh, and I want to let you know that there's a Facebook group for the show now. So if you want to discuss about the stories that you hear on the show or just chat about your favorite movies and events in history, do a search for the Base on a True Story podcast group on Facebook. You can find a link to that, the transcript for this show, and much more over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com. And with that, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Florence Foster Jenkins. The movie, simply called Florence Foster Jenkins, starts off with Florence, who's played by the amazing Meryl Streep, as an adult. But to get to know Florence, we'll need to jump back further than that. 
So our story begins three years after the Civil War in the United States came to an end when Charles and Mary Foster welcomed their daughter into the world. Narcissa Florence Foster was born on July 19, 1868 in the coal mining town of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. While little Narcissa was growing up, her father earned a living as a lawyer and a businessman. He made quite a living this way as he had a hand in the growing railway businesses and banks in the area. We don't know when, but we know that at some point in her childhood, Narcissa started going by Florence. It seems she preferred her middle name, so that's what most people called her. Thanks to her family's affluent position, at a young age, Florence started taking piano lessons. And she took to it really quickly. She became a true child prodigy. Her biggest claim to fame as a child piano player was probably when, at only seven years old, she played at the White House for the then-president Rutherford B. Hayes. It was about this time, in 1875, when Charles and Mary had their second daughter. Lillian Blanche Foster, or Lily as she was called, was Florence's only sibling. But there's not a lot that we know about Lily, and since she wasn't mentioned in the movie at all, we won't really dig into her history. Florence loved performing, and she was clearly good at it, but it wasn't something that her dad saw as anything more than a hobby. According to her father, it was something she'd grow out of. That's not quite how Florence saw things. Although we don't really know what things were like in the Foster household, it's probably safe to say that this was the cause of plenty of arguments between Charles and his teenage daughter. We can only imagine what additional stress must have been added to the Foster home when, on June 29, 1883, Florence's baby sister, Lily, died. Unfortunately, we don't really know how she died. We only know that she died at the age of eight. That is something that would send shockwaves across any family. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. EarnIn is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, EarnIn. In 1885, two years later, Florence graduated from high school and tried to convince her dad to let her go to Europe to study music professionally. She wanted to make a career out of music. This was the same year that her dad dabbled in politics for the first time when he represented Lackawanna and Luzerne counties at the Pennsylvania State House of Representatives in 1885 and 1886. While we don't really know how the conversations went down, there's a very good chance Florence's dad wasn't around much in that year. After all, 
He was already an extremely busy businessman, lawyer, and now on top of that, he had a budding political career. So when his daughter asked for money to go to Europe, he did what many other dads would do. He said no. He refused to pay for it. But Florence was stubborn. Instead of sticking around, at the age of 18 in 1886, Florence Foster became Florence Jenkins when she eloped with a dashing young doctor from Washington, D.C. named Frank Jenkins. Well, I say young. When they got married, Frank was 34 years old. So he wasn't old, but he was certainly much older than the 18-year-old Florence. Frank Jenkins' father was Rear Admiral Thornton Jenkins. If that name rings a bell, you paid attention in history class. He served as the Chief of Staff for Admiral Farragut in the Union Navy during the U.S. Civil War. We don't have much information on how this marriage between the much older Dr. Jenkins and Florence made Florence's dad feel, but I think it's pretty safe to say he probably wasn't too happy about it. After getting married, the two lived in Philadelphia where he continued his work as a doctor and Florence took up a job playing and teaching piano. Around this time, she also started taking vocal lessons. While the movie is set much later than this, there is a moment where Meryl Streep's version of Florence remarks to a doctor that her first husband gave her syphilis at an early age. Sadly, this is true. Although the marriage lasted a little longer than the movie makes it seem. A lot longer, actually. Now, it's important to point out that there's a lot of details we just don't have, but there's some things that we can surmise from what we do know. After eloping in 1885, Florence and Frank divorced in 1902, meaning that they were married for 17 years. At that point, it was almost half of Florence's life. Remember, she got married at age 18. So we can guess it was an extremely scary decision for Florence to leave Frank. Or was it Frank who cheated on Florence and left her? We don't know. What we do know is that in 1902, Florence Foster Jenkins, who had only been a teenager when she fled home to marry young, was now alone and forced to support herself. And that's exactly what she did. For years, Florence made a living teaching piano. Then, in 1909, two events would fundamentally change Florence for the rest of her life. The first of these happened on January 14, 1909, while Florence was working as the chairman of music at the luxurious Waldorf Astoria in Manhattan, New York. It was on this day that Florence met a young man who would have an enormous impact on her, Sinclair Bayfield. In the movie, Sinclair is played by Hugh Grant. And at this time, when I say young man, I mean young. Historians have debated the exact date of Sinclair's birth, but most agree that he was about 23 when he met Florence in 1909. By comparison, Florence was 40 when the two met. For a time, Florence was happy. Tragedy would soon strike, though, when Charles Foster died on September 29, 1909. We don't know how this affected Florence. We know she wasn't particularly close to her family, but it was still her dad. It couldn't have been easy. Despite their differences, Florence was Charles' only child. Half of his estate was given to Florence, and the other half was given to his only other benefactor, Charles' wife and Florence's mother, Mary. Most have estimated the amount to be about $1.5 million going to Florence and roughly the same amount going to Mary. 
Today, that's the equivalent of almost $41 million. That is life-changing money. And that's exactly what it did for Florence. Overnight, she went from someone teaching piano and struggling to make ends meet to a rich socialite who didn't have to work another day of her life. She was finally free to pursue her passion. That passion, of course, was music. We don't know what the very first thing she did after getting the money was, but we do know she started taking voice lessons again. It didn't happen right away, but Florence's first public singing performance was in 1912. And yes, it is true that she was just as bad at singing as she sounded in the film. In fact, many have applauded Meryl Streep for managing to very accurately depict the way Florence really sang on screen. But that brings up another question of accuracy, though. In the movie, Meryl Streep's version of Florence mentions something that happened to her left hand. There's a scene where she's in the apartment of her pianist, Cosme McMoon, and she had trouble playing the piano. So Cosme jumps in, playing the left hand on Chopin's Prelude in E Minor, while Florence plays the right hand. In the movie, Cosme is played by The Big Bang Theory's Simon Helberg. Although in the movie, Florence blames her inability to play on the left hand on a change in the weather, the truth is, we don't know exactly what happened to Florence's left hand. And we don't know if that's the reason why Florence stopped playing the piano. But it makes sense why it would be. Maybe it was syphilis. Maybe it was something else. All we know is that by this point, the once childhood piano prodigy had traded in the ivory keys for vocals. While this is purely my speculation, given the events that we've learned so far, it seems to make sense that if Florence were unable to play the piano for some reason, she'd continue with her love of music in whatever way possible. And since we know she'd been taking vocal lessons for a long time, that may have been her backup. Sadly, it just seems that Florence wasn't quite as talented of a singer as she was at piano. In 1917, Florence used a portion of her money to start the Verde Club. Although there's no dates in the movie, this is where we first see Meryl's version of Florence as she descends on an actor portraying Stephen Foster. No relation to Florence Foster Jenkins. Stephen Foster was a 19th century American songwriter who made a name for himself by writing songs like Camptown Races, Hard Times Come Again No More, and the one shown in the movie, Oh Susanna. In the movie, there's a moment that comes as a surprise when Florence goes to bed and takes off her wig. It's then that we see she's completely bald. While we just don't know enough about what happened in the privacy of Florence's home to know if that particular scene took place, the truth is that Florence was bald. Most historians agree it likely wasn't directly because of her syphilis, though, but probably because of the mercury treatments she was receiving for the syphilis. At the time, the best medical treatments for syphilis included a barrage of mercury-induced items such as ointments, pills, mercury chloride oil, and even mercury-filled steam baths. Today, we know mercury is extremely poisonous, but at the time, it was considered a treatment for illness. All of this despite its long list of side effects such as tooth loss, ulcerations in the mouth, throat, and skin, and of course, death. It sort of makes you wonder... What medical treatments nowadays with their long list of side effects will end up being banned as poison in the future? Anyway, another turning point in the movie occurs when Florence sees Lily Pons singing. The movie makes it seem like this is the inspiration for Florence's desire to sing. 
Well, as you can probably guess, Florence was in love with music for her whole life. She had been taking vocal lessons off and on for most of her life up to this point. So even though we don't really know if Florence ever saw Lily perform like this, it's pretty safe to say this specific moment did not happen. With that said, Lily Pons was a real person. She had an incredibly successful career as an actress and singer for about 50 years, starting around this time in the 1920s all the way to the 1970s. Oh, and in the movie, Lily is portrayed by another talented actress, Ada Garifalina. Speaking of which, in the movie, a few other characters we learn about are Florence's pianist, Cosme McMoon, and her manager, Sinclair Bayfield. We've already heard a little bit about both of these, but the way the film portrays these two is actually pretty accurate. However, unlike the movie, Cosme wasn't the first pianist to play with Florence. It was in 1928 when Florence met a pianist named Edwin MacArthur at one of her social events. In the movie, we see a line of pianists come in for interviews with Florence. While it may not have been exactly like that, Edwin did come in for an interview at Florence's request. He got the job and worked as her accompanying pianist for the next six years. We don't know quite as many details about how Florence and Cosme met, but it's probably safe to assume it's fairly similar. Since Florence frequented social clubs and events, she likely met up with the talented pianist at some point in the late 1920s as well. For a time, both Edwin and Cosme would accompany Florence. Not at the same time, but rather when Florence began singing to entertain her friends at social events, it was usually Edwin or Cosme who accompanied her on the piano. While these two may have been the ones that most often accompanied her, it's worth pointing out that they weren't the only pianists to play while Florence sang. For the most part, the pianists seemed to play along with it, both physically and figuratively. In the movie, though, Cosme is torn. He knows how badly Florence sounds when she sings, but he really starts to like her as a person. So he goes along with it. Oh, and I'm sure the money didn't hurt either. Again, we don't know the specific details, but the gist of what we see on screen in the movie seems to be pretty accurate to history. Perhaps the reason why Cosme is the only pianist we see accompany Florence is because, in truth, he was the only pianist who stuck with Florence throughout her entire singing career. Florence Foster Jenkins' first full-length concert came in 1931 when she performed at the Ritz-Carlton. Florence was 63 years old at this time. She continued to perform from time to time. Then, in 1934, she fired Edwin MacArthur after he made fun of Florence in front of an audience. What we don't know is if this was a one-time occurrence or if this happened multiple times and Florence simply had enough. In 1935, she performed publicly twice and twice again in 1936. Then, in 1937, she performed five times. We know Florence had a love of music, and since everyone around her seemed to love her singing, as the years went on, she kept it up. As 1938 rolled around, Florence performed as many as eight times. She even went over to England to sing, something that's pretty remarkable considering that's just before World War II broke out. While it was still a little bit too early to put a halt on traveling to Europe, for a socialite who'd spent most of her life with the well-off in the United States, traveling abroad at such a time had to have been quite an ordeal. In the movie, it appears to be Sinclair Bayfield who enables Florence's behavior by paying off audience members and even newspaper reporters who review Florence's recitals. 
Unfortunately, we just don't know exactly how much of this is true. What we do know is that there was indeed a large group of people around Florence who cheered her on and encouraged her. Along with this, there were quite a few good reviews of Florence's performance in the papers too. One of the more popular ones quoted by newspaper articles and historians was an unnamed critic who claimed Florence's singing would give you more kick than the equivalent cost of tequila, vodka, or marijuana. Another aspect shown in the movie are Florence's dazzling costumes. These are all pretty spot on historically, and they were something the audience loved. In the movie, there's sort of a love triangle between Meryl Streep's version of Florence, her manager, Hugh Grant's character, St. Clair Bayfield, and another woman that St. Clair is seeing named Kathleen. In the movie, Kathleen is played by Rebecca Ferguson. Of course, we don't have all the details about their private lives, but of what we do know, there appears to be some elements of truth in this. There also appears to be some inaccuracies with the way it plays out on screen too. We already learned that Florence and St. Clair met in 1909, long before Florence's first singing gig in 1931. During this time, Florence was one to frequent a variety of social events around New York, and often she needed someone to accompany her. After all, that was typical of the time. St. Clair filled in, and it didn't take long for a romantic relationship to spring up out of their professional relationship. But this didn't stop Florence and St. Clair from flirting with others at these social events. We don't know when it happened, but at some point, St. Clair met a British woman at one of these events named Kathleen Weatherly. The two hit it off, and a rather secret relationship started. So that part of what we see in the film is true. Probably the most inaccurate part of what we see in the movie is with the timeline. In the movie, Florence seems to keep trying to get Sinclair to stay with her throughout, well, most of the film. In truth, by the time 1932 had rolled around, Florence and Sinclair had ended their romantic relationship. Despite this, though, the two still needed each other. Florence had come to rely on Sinclair's writing, directing, and overall management of the events that she loved putting on. On the other side, Sinclair, well, he needed a job, and the two continued to work together professionally. Were there attempts from Florence or Sinclair to resume their romantic relationship like the movie implies? There seems to be no indication of this in history, but because we just don't know much of what happened in their private lives, we just don't know. In the movie, the big dramatic ending happens when Florence decides to perform at the prestigious Carnegie Hall in New York City. As with anything else we've seen in the film, there's no time indicated here, but this event did happen on October 25th, 1944. And just like the movie indicates, it was a sold-out event. By this time, everyone knew who Florence was. Something which helped sell out the concert was something else that the movie alludes to, it was also Florence's first concert that was open to the public. Up until this point, she'd performed in front of plenty of people, but it was always something that she ran for her friends. This time was different. Anyone could buy a ticket, and everyone wanted one. Many historians believe Florence only opened up the concert to the public because so many requested to hear her sing in person. Because of Florence's numerous and influential friends, her performances were the talk of the town, even if most had not seen her in person. 
the singer we saw in the movie, Lily Pons, was in attendance that night at Carnegie Hall and even wrote a song specifically for Florence to sing. Something else that helped her sell out Carnegie Hall were her recordings, which the movie correctly shows as having been something she did in a single take. These have been reviewed numerous times by critics and listened to by countless more people, although almost every single one of these reviews refused to say something negative. Instead, they merely stated it was extremely entertaining. One critic even went so far as personally offering to refund your money if you were not entertained by Florence's record. Of course, we don't know if anyone took him up on that, but the point is still that everyone seemed to have a fascination with Florence. It reminds me sort of like the more recent fascination with the TV show American Idol, especially in those early episodes when the whole point of the show is to be entertained by how bad other people are singing. Anyway, back in the film, at the Carnegie Hall recital, there's a moment at the beginning when everyone starts laughing at Florence. Then, a blonde woman stands up and scolds the crowd. This woman, who's played by actress Nina Arianda, is named Agnes Stark. We saw her early in the film, when it was her who laughed at Florence. Now, in a moment almost too good to be true, it was Agnes who was backing Florence. Well, if it's almost too good to be true, it usually is not. And in this case... It's not true. There was no Agnes Stark. That character was made up by the filmmakers as a way of characterizing the crowd's reactions. In truth, the audience at Carnegie Hall on October 25, 1944, loved Florence's performance. Many critics in attendance assumed that most of the people that came weren't there to see a serious musical, but rather to enjoy a fun evening of entertainment. Whether or not that's true, that's exactly what they got. Although the movie doesn't show this, there was a moment during the performance when one of the wings on Florence's magnificent bird costume collapsed. The entire performance had to be put on hold while stagehands tried to help repair the costume. Meanwhile, Cosme had to stop playing the piano while the costume was fixed. When the performance resumed, Cosme was a bit flustered by what had happened and spent much of the rest of the performance trying to keep up with Florence. It was something that truly entertained the crowd. While this wasn't in the movie, the assistant manager of the Metropolitan Opera mentioned during the performance, Florence threw tiny red flowers from a basket into the audience, and then, in a moment of apparent confusion, the entire basket accidentally got tossed alongside the flowers. One of the critics in attendance that night would later say, Florence could sing anything but notes. Or another saying that she only hit a few notes the entire night. In the movie, after the performance, there's a great deal of effort that Sinclair and Cosme go to to try to hide the negative reviews from Florence. While we don't know if the way the movie portrays it is exactly how it happened, again, the gist of what the movie shows is fairly accurate. Probably the most inaccurate part of what happened was after the performance, Florence was not happy with it. She had gone into the performance assuming everyone would be cheering and applauding her while everyone seemed to love it, there was also plenty of laughing going on. That was not something she expected. The next day, as the movie shows, Florence read the reviews. It crushed her. The movie makes it seem like it was right after reading a negative review that Florence fainted and hit her head. Then, she dies seemingly right away. Sadly, again, this is fairly accurate. 
Although she didn't faint and hit her head like that, in truth, Florence was never in very good health. If it wasn't because of the syphilis, it was mercury poisoning from the medication. Whatever the cause, we know she had a heart attack and took ill after her performance at Carnegie Hall. Almost exactly one month after the performance, on November 26, 1944, Florence Foster Jenkins passed away at her residence in the Seymour Hotel in New York City. Throughout the movie, there's a general sense that Meryl Streep's version of Florence Foster Jenkins is a very sweet lady who has a kind heart. As best as we can tell, the movie got this pretty spot on to the real Florence. According to many who knew her, she truly believed she was a talented singer. Anyone who laughed at her was merely a hoodlum. One reporter even went so far as to ask Sinclair Bayfield why Florence sang. His reply was that she simply loved music. But if she loved music so much, why would she sing so horribly? Sinclair's reply was that she used the proceeds to help aspiring young artists. We just don't know what Florence's true intentions were. Was she aware of how off-key she was and just kept going as long as she could? Or did she truly believe herself to be a talented musician on par with the best singers in the world? With little to no information about Florence's intentions, this is something historians have debated for decades. And it's likely something that we will all continue to debate anytime the topic of Florence Foster Jenkins comes up. Regardless of the debates, one fact we know is that Florence made a pretty penny that night in 1944. Well, not all concerts are the same. By comparison, a ticket to see a performance at Carnegie Hall today can range anywhere from $50 to $150 for the average ticket. The cost of a ticket to see Florence's first and what would ultimately be her only truly public performance was about $20 or the equivalent of $277 today. In a single night, Florence left Carnegie Hall with $4,000 in ticket sales, over $55,000 in today's money. Not bad, considering, according to one critic's review of the evening, all the audience left with was a dizzying headache. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. To learn more about the fascinating life of Florence Foster Jenkins, I'd highly recommend picking up the book that inspired the movie by Nicholas Martin and Jasper Rees. The book is a biography on Florence, and it's also called Florence Foster Jenkins. You can find a link to the book, other episodes of the podcast, and much more over at the show's home on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Now, before we get to the two truths and a lie game, I've been amazed by some of the great reviews that you've left over on iTunes. So I wanted to start a little segment to just take a moment and share some of those reviews for the show. The very first review on iTunes came from The Talking Hawk, who gave a five-star review and says, quote, great to see what they had to change to fit a film adaptation, end quote. The Talking Hawk is actually a really good friend of mine, so maybe a little bit of a cheat here, but to the Talking Hawk, I also know that I didn't tell you I'd be reading this, so I'll stick to using your username instead of your real name, but I really appreciate you taking the time to leave a review for the show. Thank you. Thanks again to the Talking Hawk for the great review, and thank you for listening to the Based on a True Story podcast. 
If you want to leave a five-star review for me to read in a future episode, hop over to iTunes. Finally, it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the real name for the character of Cosme McMoon in the movie was Edwin MacArthur. Number two, Florence was a prodigy pianist as a child. Number three, the first appearance that the public could purchase tickets to was Florence's Carnegie Hall performance. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is, number one, Cosme McMoon and Edwin MacArthur were actually two different people, both of which were hired by Florence to accompany her singing on the piano. Like the movie says in the text at the end of the movie, after Florence passed away, Cosme left his career in music. Perhaps followed by Florence's following of her own passion, he decided to follow his own passion, bodybuilding. He became a bodybuilder as well as judging bodybuilding, just like the movie says. Oh, and he was also a master chess player. Cosme remained single his whole life and passed away from pancreatic cancer in August of 1980. What did you think about the life of Florence Foster Jenkins? Or perhaps you're someone who's been listening to the podcast and haven't introduced yourself yet. I would love to hear from you. If you're not sure what to say, just let me know how you found out about the show. You can contact me through the show's website at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. You can find me in the Based on a True Story Podcast Facebook group or on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Or if you prefer not to do social media, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at danlefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.